for black thinking, spiritual breath and thinking are identical rather than thinking and being. Black studies will have to disinvest our axiological commitments from humanism and invest elsewhere. Continuing to keep hope that freedom will occur, that one day the world will apologize for its anti-Black brutality and accept us with open arms is a devastating fantasy. It might give one motivation to fight on, but it is a drive that will only produce exhaustion and protest fatigue. solution? What should we do? How do we live without metaphysical schemes of political hope, freedom, and humanity? I would have to suggest that there are no solutions to the problem of anti-Blackness. There is only endurance. And endurance cannot be reduced to biofuturity or humanist mandates. Endurance is a spiritual practice with entirely different aims. Ontological terror seeks to challenge metaphysical and post-metaphysical solutions. The paradigm of the free Black teaches us that such solutions sustain the metaphysical Holocaust. Let our thinking lead us into the valley of the shadow of death. And once there, we can begin to imagine an existence anew. to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. My name is Matt, and I recently had a chance to speak with Calvin Warren, who is Associate Professor in African American Studies at Emory College. He's also an author, and his book, Ontological Terror, Blackness, Nihilism, and Emancipation, uh, is required reading, in my opinion. I'll link to where you can get a hold of that in the show notes. Uh, he's currently working on a second project called Onticide, Essays on Black Nihilism and Sexuality, uh, which unravels the metaphysical foundations of black sexuality and argues for a rethinking of sexuality without the human sexual difference or coherent bodies. I have to say, this was a challenging conversation for me. One, because it's the first time I've interviewed a guest by myself, which, you know, is a sort of different dynamic. Uh, two, because as you'll hear, my son Cameron, who's five, breaks in uh, along the way and starts making seemingly unreasonable demands. And finally, because Calvin's work is just, well, it's challenging and it's troubling. and uh, It's troubled my own thought. And, um, and, and I mean that in the best sense possible. I'm going to avoid saying too much about the conversation now. I don't want to sort of overcode the conversation. I, I think we're going to end up 
Uh, well, Justin and I spoke about possibly doing a response slash debrief episode where we'll get into these ideas a bit more. Uh, but before we get into the conversation, just a few announcements about our recent and upcoming seminars. We recently spoke to Dr. Marika Rose, author of A Theology of Failure, about the importance of Zizek's thought for radical theology. It was a fantastic conversation. Uh, we'll put it up on Patreon soon. In June, Adam Clark, former student of James Cohn, will lead our seminar in a discussion of Cohn's fraught relationship with radical theology. I'm sure we'll get into some other things as well. And in July, Clayton Clock... <laughs> Clayton Clockett. Clayton Crockett will join for a discussion on radical theology and new materialism. I think we've mentioned this before, but Clayton will have a new book out soon on energy and change, and we'll maybe get a preview of some of what he's been working on. Head over to patreon.com slash radical theology and sign up. You'll get access to all of our seminar content, be able to directly interact with experts in the field. You can also get access to the Radical Theology Seminar Library that not only has all the readings from the seminars, but also a growing list of classic and seminal texts in Radical Theology that we are uh, constantly curating. All right, hope you enjoy the conversation with Calvin Warren. Peace. I'm Calvin Warren. I'm an associate professor of African-American studies at Emory University. Um, right now I'm working on a second project It's entitled Onticide, Essays on Nihilism and uh, Sexuality. And it wrestles with the metaphysical underpinnings of sexuality. Um, it thinks about sexuality as being an alibi for being. And it works to show the way that sexuality has uh, sustained various forms of anti-Blackness. It's not been a field of freedom and agency and self-making, self-fashioning, um, but it has often sustained various forms of anti-Black subjection. So the text wants to expose that, and it also wants to try to destroy sexuality as an anti-Black uh, structure. Um, so that's where I am now. Um, I am also working on another project that explores the relation between Blackness and Badu. Um, I've been thinking a great deal about mathematics. And if mathematics is ontology, and if Blacks are non-ontological, as I and others have argued, does that mean that Blackness is anti-mathematical? If that's the case, what would an anti-mathematics entail? Um, how does Blackness disrupt um, the null set, the void? Um, how is it that the multiplicity of the multiplicity doesn't provide any type of relief or celebration of something new, but it just re-entrenches the type of anti-Black formations that we've seen. So it wants to think through what an anti-mathematics might look like. Um, and if there is a philosophy of Black mathematics, how might we conceptualize it? So th those are the projects I'm working on now. Wow, that's pretty wild. I mean, the, the question of how Blackness can disrupt the null set 
makes me wonder about how that sort of squares up with your recent work, which thinks about, and you know, maybe I don't have my definitions in order, but thinking about blackness as the null set, as this sort of void. Yeah, well, you know, if if for Badu, the null set um, is the purity of being itself, then blackness cannot be that. So when I say blackness is the null set, in uh, that way, I'm thinking about perhaps um, the null set of the null set. Um, I'm thinking about um, something, what Frantz Fanon would call the abyss. So it would be the abyss within the null set, okay. um, something that the null set cannot accommodate and something that being does not usher in something new, but in fact um, is really impotent in a certain way to um, to interrogate or to intervene. So for me, um, blackness as the null set does not mean the null set of Badu's set theory. It means the abyss. If I'm understanding you right, analogous in a certain sense to the set of all sets, but like it's obverse or something like that. It's something that's sort of situated outside of every set. <laughs> it's hard to think about. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to think about it. And that's precisely um, why Blackness is non-conceptual is because it renders conceptuality inadequate. So yeah. when we're faced with a situation like this, mm-hmm. um, when we're trying to place Blackness within uh, the null set or the set of all sets, and we f- figure out that we can't quite do it, And we realize that Blackness is a problem for thought. And that is what makes Black philosophy so generative. Maybe we can circle back to the the mathematical stuff. I I don't know that I'm prepared to have that conversation, (laughs) frankly. I I got halfway through, um, what's Badu's big book? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was just like... I'll come back to this when I'm when I'm ready. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, like I mentioned to you, uh, your your work has been uh, cited by uh, several of the guests that we've we've spoken to, kind of going back all the way to the beginning. Um, Tommy Lynch, I don't know if you know him. He he wrote a book called Apocalyptic Political Theology, mm-hmm. and he cites you in there and talks about your influence on him. Uh, and then uh, more recently. Uh, you came up in a conversation um, with Mary Jane Rubinstein. Um, I, don't, I usually don't pay much attention to unfamiliar names because they come up all the time. But mm-hmm. when they come up several times and from from thinkers who I, I, I respect, I, I typically I'll pay more attention. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I was interested to ask you about is the idiom or or genre. I'm not sure what to call it that you're working out of or associated with is this thing called Afro-pessimism. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking maybe, you know, for, for my sake, honestly, and for uh, the sake of people who have no familiarity with that, I was wondering if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about that, maybe just lay a little bit of groundwork and may, maybe we could back into that question by way of personal background. Um, I'm curious about, you know, what experiences and, and so on have shaped you into the person, the thinker you are today. Well, I'll, I'll start uh, with the personal background. You know, I always tell people that there's a certain primal scene that was generative of my Black nihilism. And uh, the primal scene is when I was in the seventh grade, I remember I was sitting in a chair studying for a Latin exam that I had the next day. And I remember I was studying and I heard a loud thump and I didn't think anything of it. And I just kept studying. 
And all of a sudden, um, the thump got louder and I was a bit curious, but I had no clue what it was. And so I, you know, just kept studying. And then my door was broken down and it was a SWAT team and they had guns, you know, up and, you know, they threw me to the ground. Um, and one of the police officers put a shotgun to my head and said, if you move, I will shoot you. Shit. And I remember as a seventh grader having an existential moment. I had been taught that if I studied hard, this would never happen to me. If I went to church, this would never happen to me. If I was a good person, I didn't lie. I was truthful. Um, I was decent. I had integrity. I worked hard. I gave to others. This would never happen to me. This doesn't happen to good people. And I felt the steel against my head. And I knew if I sneezed, that would be the end of me. And it was very apparent. Calvin, don't sneeze. Don't cough. Don't breathe. Just try to be as lifeless as possible. And in the background, I hear this scream. And it's my mother coming out uh, from her bedroom, screaming, you have the wrong house, you have the wrong house. Please don't kill my son. I don't know who you're looking for. You have the wrong house. She got on her knees and she begged these police officers, please, please do not kill him. And it was because she got on her knees and begged them that they took the gun off of my head and, and they left. But I looked at her and she looked at me with tears in her eyes, completely humiliated. And at that moment I knew that there was nothing that she could do to save me. The only thing that saved me was her tears. And that's just because they didn't feel like killing me that day. But all that I had been told was a lie. That if you studied hard, that if you had a nice haircut, that if you dressed well, that if you spoke proper English, that if you didn't sag your pants, that if you were an upstanding citizen, that you would survive was a complete lie. And at that moment, I had to realize that I was in the abyss. There was nothing that anyone could give me that could save me from the police putting a bullet through my head. And at that moment, I realized where I was as a Black, as Black. Um, And to be Black is to be completely exposed without any metaphysical protection. There isn't any symbolic fiction or fantasy that's going to save you from the police's bullet, from his gun, from any form of violence. There isn't any biofuturistic security that you can hoard for yourself in order to survive to the next day. And I realized from that day going forward that every day I breathe is another opportunity for a police's bullet to enter my skull. And Afro-pessimism brings that anecdote to a paradigmatic, what they call a paradigmatic analysis. And that is to say that there's a structural antagonism that um, forms the world or sustains the world. And that is between humans and non-humans. It's an antagonism because it can never be resolved. It's just an irresolvable tension in which anti-Black violence destroys Black flesh in order to sustain human life. And that there isn't any policy, any legislation, any amount of voting or marching or rolling on the ground or praying or charming or pleading that's ever going to stop that. Mm-hmm. Black flesh is interminably under assault. Um, and, you know, one of the things that Afro-pessimism wants to argue is that 
all of the fictions of resolution, all of the fiction of justice, all of these fictions are precisely that. They, none of them have worked. No amount of protesting and marching and dressing in suits um, is going to save us. They lynched us in suits and nice dresses. Um, they burned us alive, speaking proper English. Um, so all of the things that we're told that we can do to preserve our lives have failed as strategies. So Afro-pessimism wants to disabuse us of these fantasies that have anchored this sense of Black humanism. And that is that Blacks can claim being just like everyone else claims being. Um, we can attach ourselves to being by claiming that we're human, but the fact that we're slaughtered every day as we've seen in Buffalo is an indication that that's not true. Is that a story you tell very often? I do when people ask about the origin of my nihilism. I, I got to admit, I wasn't ready for that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the sense of really terror came through mm -hmm. uh, in the telling of it. I'm not sure what the appropriate response is, but but the sort of the story that you told makes the trajectory towards philosophical forms of pessimism far more understandable and certainly Afro-pessimism. I think one of the things that I'm wondering about and I think maybe that I get wrong, I, I'm not sure is to confuse it with a, uh, a certain affective disposition. I think maybe the reason I, I think of that is because I'm thinking of Schopenhauer, who was a fucking grump, right? Um, but I don't know. You seem not so grumpy. I mean, not necessarily cheery, but, you know, not grumpy. Is that, is that something that people often uh, get wrong about Afro-pessimism? Well, I think when you don't um, acknowledge the philosophical merits of the discourse, it's reduced to affect or the pathological. Uh, someone like Cornell West would argue that forms of black nihilism, and I'll include here uh, Afro-pessimism, are diseases of the soul and are more like addictions that need to be diagnosed and um, treated. Um, and so there is a lineage, one way of dismissing the philosophical claims of Afro-pessimism is by uh, reducing it to affect or reducing it to a pathology that can be addressed by just being happier um, and seeing right. the brighter side of things or, you know, taking an antidepressant and just living more. <laughs> All good strategies. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, no matter how many antidepressants you take, if a police decides to shoot you in the head, he's going to, you know, no matter how happy you are and how cheerful you are and how much light you bring to the room, um, you will still be killed if they so choose to do so. And there's rarely a conviction. Um, I'm sure many people were very happy shopping in the supermarket in, in Buffalo. Um, that didn't save them. Um, you know, George Floyd was a very happy fellow, as people say. He was very cheerful and smiling all the time. And he had a, a knee to his neck. So happiness hasn't really worked for Black people. So um, I think it's less an affective and pathological disposition. And it's more of a philosophical position and insight into the structure of the world and why things like happiness have never been reliable strategies for Blacks to survive. It's uh, really helpful to hear you say that because, like I said, uh, up until recently, I think that was uh, you know something I was getting wrong, but it remained a, a question. 
Um, one of the things that's really, well, there's a lot of things I like about this book and I know it's, it's been a few years since you wrote it, but this is like one of the most badass titles for a book ever. Ontological terror. <laughs> it sounds like a, you're not into metal, are you? Mm-mm. No, it sounds like a, like a, like a nineties metal band. <laughs> I can see that. I guess, I guess I have a question about like, what would you say is the best way to introduce your work for people? Is it Black Lives Matter? Is it Heidegger? What's the the best point of entry, would you say? Hmm. The best point of entry, that's a good question. I think the best best point of entry, let's say one point of entry, Mm -hmm. would be lynching. When you think about a lynching, a number of questions emerge. One question is, why did it happen? Another question is, well, you see the photo, why weren't any people locked up? Another question you have is, why did it happen so frequently if it's illegal? Another question you have is, why did they pray before it and offer the genital up to God? You know, thinking about lynching will bring a number of these questions into into sight. And I get what Heidegger says when he says questions build away. When you start asking questions about something um, and they're proper metaphysical questions, which mean they get to the very heart of being, you'll find that you go down the rabbit hole of questioning until you reach an impasse of the unanswerable. And that is what my book attempts to do. So I think a good entry point is starting with any incident of Black suffering. Mm. And you start asking the humanist question that is supposed to explain it. Well, if this person were a human being, a citizen equal before the law, why did thousands of people gathered around this lynched body, burned, mutilated, cut up, and no one was locked up. Why? And then you say pure hatred. So you're telling me that hatred alone is enough to discount the Constitution? And then the more you start asking these annoying questions, eventually a person will reach a nihilistic conclusion that these questions are unanswerable. And that's where the nihilist begins. The Black nihilist begins with the unanswerability of Black humanism. All of the responses that it would give to lynching become nonsensical and irrational, and you start there. So that's that's one way that I would enter the book. Yeah. You mentioned Heidegger, and uh, you talk about the importance of, of thinking with and against Heidegger. And I think you, you do that to great effect. As I was reading through it, what came, what came to mind for me was perhaps taking seriously when he talks about just to let being be, mm-hmm. it, it seems like maybe what you're saying is along those lines, but a, a sort of radicalization of it, right? Not just like let being be, or, or to even turn our backs on being, but to, to actively destroy being. Do I have that right? Or, and if so, I mean, like, how does one go about destroying being is, is another question I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say that you're, you're right on, uh, on the track, on the right track. There is this idea, let's say, going back to Black suffering, that the solution to Black suffering 
is to insist on one's human beingness. And you realize that the power of that insistence is that we think being is powerful. We think that if we can prove that we are it, that we have it, that it covers us, that somehow there will be some recognition for humanity. So remember when we talk about the human being, the human is important because it is grounded in being, right? Uh, Heidegger might call that Dasein, but let's just say in, in normal parlance, when we talk about the human being, I think what goes unacknowledged is the importance that being is playing as an anchoring for humanness, humanity. Um, what I have attempted to show is that being has not been a reliable resource to protect Blacks from anti-Black violence. And in fact, being as a concept, it's not universal, it's not transhistorical, it emerges at a time when we are justifying imperialism and the transatlantic slave trade. It itself has been an accomplice in anti-Black violence to justify it. Some have it and others don't have it, and so you can kill them. So what I attempted to do was to show that being is not a universal resource like air. Um, everybody uses it, everyone has, is it, has it. Being is a racial privilege. And when we realize that being is a racial privilege, that's an accomplice in anti-Black violence, the only thing that we can do toward it is to try to destroy it. Now, how exactly we destroy being, is a major question that I don't have the answer to. But I think one of the things that we can do as a nihilist is to demystify it, denaturalize it, to show its origin, its genesis, that it is not universal, that it has been exclusive. It's predicated on exclusionary operations. You know, Heidegger talks about, you know, we can never fully overcome metaphysics, but we can weaken it. So his solution to metaphysics is that even if we can't completely destroy it, we can so severely weaken it that we can get over it. I think that we'd have to apply something similar to being itself, that perhaps we can never completely get over it. We can weaken the ontological infrastructure of being such that Blacks think of it as inapplicable, even if we can't completely get rid of it. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty clear from what you write and what you talk about that what you're up to isn't can't be considered a, a form of humanism, especially in the sense that the, the orientation here isn't one toward towards liberation or making appeals to more liberal notions of justice, equality, freedom, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the space that you're working from is, would you say it's post-liberal or illiberal? I, I'm not sure <laughs> because certainly this, as I said, this isn't a recognizable humanism, but I, I'm wondering if, if there's a sense in which it might be fair to read this work as a kind of post-humanist philosophy. And I guess what I'm thinking of here, here is the way that like you talk about black bodies, how they're deprived of being and, and exist to fulfill this uh, function, mm -hmm. right. In the way that we've been talking about. Okay. I think he thought better of it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you think that's fair? I guess what um, I'm getting at is that could this form of thought be applied to animal, vegetal, uh, mineral being, you know, you kind of get that in early Heidegger, I think. And I'm not trying to universalize your theory or anything like that. I'm just mm -hmm. wondering about its, you know, possible applicability to other, other forms of 
being or forms of life? I'm not sure. What what's the generative dimension in your to your way of thinking? Well, the generative dimension for me is blacks are not enslaved to being. And because blacks do not have to be enslaved to being, they can explore other ways of existing. Existing does not have to be reduced to being. And because there's a gap between being and existing, we do not have to have fealty to an anti-Black formation to sustain our lives. For me, that's the most hopeless thing of all for Blacks. You know, a lot of people think I'm hopeless and I think I'm the most hopeful person of all because they're constantly going back to the altar of anti-Black ontology, bowing down to it, hoping if they pray well enough that somehow they'll be saved from destruction and those prayers are never answered. And rather than getting up from that altar, they just sit there in their ritualistic humiliation hoping that something else will occur. To me, that's the most hopeless, desperate, you know, humiliating position for Blacks to be in. So if there's anything liberatory or generative in my work, it is to tell Blacks that you do not have to be tethered to a concept that wants to actively destroy you. You can um, explore other ways of existing, and that's Part of the reason why I say that perhaps Blacks need to lean into the spirit rather than constantly begging, pleading, hoping that being will save us. Um, Whether this can be applied to other things, usually object-oriented ontology and all of the posts um, still rely on being. Mm -hmm. Their aim is not to destroy being, but to show that other forms of life have being and should be recognized as being. And that's the same recognition strategy that Black humanists have been using in order to sustain themselves. So I don't think that my Black nihilism is amenable to any of the ontological projects that just want to um, distribute ontology to other forms of life. Right. That to me doesn't do anything more but try to concretize an anti-black formation. The thing you were saying about, you know, folks expecting a different result while doing the same thing mm-hmm. certainly resonates for me. And you I'm I'm curious what you mean in the first instance by spirit when you invoke that word, you know, because I'm curious about the sort of theological dimension of your work as well. Mm-hmm. And another term that you use at times is execrate, which I, I don't hear it simply as a bit of rhetoric to describe how black being is, is cursed, but there's a proper theological dimension to that. Mm-hmm. Um, some sort of association, uh, consideration of the sacred in the making of execrated bodies. And I, I guess I'm, interested in in that and how it relates to maybe a concept of God, but I'm tempted more to say like vis-a-vis Tillich, uh, like ultimate concern um, is maybe a better way to say that. Yeah. So, you know, execration um, comes out of the curse of Ham. You know, um, it is Ham's sons and um, descendants that are, we are told, have been cursed and their curse is to be execrated to the extent that they are the eternal knee benders. And so they are to be the slaves of the world. So there is an uh, ontotheological dimension of ontology 
that merges ontology and theology together in order to explain and justify the enslavements of Blacks, to try to provide a theological frame of reference Mm -hmm. for um, the position of Blacks as subordinate. So there is that dimension. So when I speak of execrated flesh, I mean a particular auto-theology in the way that that auto-theology, Heidegger wasn't concerned with the Hamitic myth and the way that the Hamitic myth was used auto-theologically to justify the expansion of the globe. But that is just to say that when I speak of execration, part of that can be thought of as that Hamitic curse. Um, When I speak of the spirit, however, I don't have in mind a strict Judeo-Christian understanding of it because I think it's so enmeshed in our theology that we have abandoned the spirit for this religiosity. Mm. Um, For me, the spirit is much more capacious than Western um, religion and and Judeo-Christianity. The spirit, if anything, and it's it's an incredibly difficult term to define because it it will defy and escape every definitional um, and capture. It just slips through it. So at an attempt to do the impossible, what I what I'll say is that the spirit is the resource that blacks have relied on to survive something like the Middle Passage. So we ask ourselves, how did Blacks who were in the hold of the ship, who did not have a sense of time, who did not know where they were, you know, France Fanon says that their cosmological and customary ways were severed, which meant that in the hold of the ship, no ritualistic guides or principles were adhered to. So a young woman might see an older man naked, and that might have been um, a no-no in their original context. But in the hold of the ship, all of that is severed. You're sitting in fecal matter. You're sitting in, you know, vaginal secretions. You're sitting in liquid and things that were considered to be you know, completely inappropriate. But all of that is just to say that how do you survive in that complete obliteration of your cosmology in the hold of the ship for that long and get to the other side of the ocean? And that is to say that there was something there that were keeping people alive and not just alive, but keeping them intact. And for me, that something is the spirit. There was something that allowed Blacks in the South, let's say in Mississippi in 1920, to send their children to school, even though there was a lynched man hanging from the courthouse, knowing that their children could be on that rod as well. How do you send your children into the world knowing that they cannot come home and be lynched, that their penis can be sitting on the corner store in a pickle jar, just like anyone else's penis? How do you send your children out into that world? How do you yourself go to church knowing that the clan might surround the church after you try to leave it and slaughter everyone there as they often did? How did you do that? How did you get the courage to go to church 
knowing that the Klan would be sitting outside, burning a cross with their rifles, waiting to beat you to death. And that for me was the spirit. The spirit allowed them to go into the church, knowing that the Klan was outside. The spirit allowed them to face the constant ubiquitous terrorism of anti-Blackness and keep their head up, even though someone spit in their face as they were walking on the sidewalk. That for me is what we have to get at. That's the spirit. That's not voting. That's not Black Lives Matter. That's not rolling around in Christianity. That is to say that there is some um, ineffable force that has kept Black existence um, going. And for lack of a better term, I use the spirit. So that's because I was raised as a Christian. And to me, the spirit was the closest signifier or sign that I could find that would express something inexpressible. So, for example, when I was in church and someone caught the spirit, they were able to do the miraculous. They were they seemed they were able to overcome limitations. They were able to speak in languages that they would should not have known. And so it was the spirit that enabled them to do that. So I borrow that term, not because I am trying to place my work into a Western Christiology, but is to say that I'm just borrowing it as an inadequate sign to express something ineffable. The reference you make about glossalia, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have a opinion on on that. I'm wondering about possibly reclaiming something like speaking in tongues as a form of expression that exceeds the rational parameters of, maybe I could say of being, right? Yeah, you know, I I think I would call these things spiritual practices. Um, These are the way that the spirit is expressed. Um, There's speaking in tongues, there's dancing, there's rejoicing, there's praying, they're sitting in silence. Uh, there are a number of spiritual practices, in, including speaking in tongues, that people use to express the spirit. You know, I, in terms of speaking in tongues, I grew up in a church in which that was a practice, and it was a sacred practice. Um, and when it occurred, it was an indication that there was a dialogue between you and um, a spiritual force, uh, between you and your God. And that dialogue was a sacred one. And it was one that you didn't need money, you didn't need fame, you didn't need permission, you didn't need surveillance, you didn't need any metaphysical security to engage in. It was a resource that you could rely on to be renewed. Um, If you had been worked to death for that day, if you were in the cotton field picking cotton all day until your feet were bloodied and you were feeling like you were a nobody, you were feeling like your existence was completely inadequate and completely obliterated, you could go into the church and have that dialogue with God and you would be renewed. So it has been a practice that that saved the lives of Black folks, um, and I'm speaking in this context of Black folks, although others engage in speaking in tongues as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as an outsider or even as a theorist, 
you know, we probably want to theorize the theological merits of the practice, but I think the practice itself has a spiritual functionality in which it is a practice that strengthens one's spirit to sustain you in an anti-Black world. Um, and it was a place of refuge, a practice of, of, of rejuvenation. What, if anything, do you think gets missed these days in the kind of, I don't know, on one hand, the more liberal racial polemics you'll, you'll hear? Is that sort of thing productive at all, in your opinion, or, or counterproductive? Um, I've no, I noticed that. If you don't hold a Mr. Tomorrow to the week, to the week, the game, um, mm-hmm. he takes control of your PC. The tomato takes control of your computer? <laughs> That's a powerful tomato. And his name is Mr. Tomato. <laughs> and his name is Mr. Tomato. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, not sure where I was in that in that question. Um, one of the things I noticed is that you don't really enter into discussions uh, or concern yourself, it seems, in discussions of racism or anti-racism. So I guess the other side of that is something like, what do you make of recent concern about CRT and stuff like that? What do you think about the way that racial issues get discussed these days in the public sphere? I think that there is um, a great deal of labor that's performed to prevent a discussion of anti-Blackness and the way that anti-Blackness structures our life. Um, the way that anti-Blackness structures relation, the way that anti-Blackness is necessary for the economy and for all of the systems Mm -hmm. that we rely on. Um, And I think part of the CRT craze is that teaching, and really, I guess when they say CRT, they mean any uh, study of race or racism and not the legal theory, but any study of race and racism will bring us to the structure of this antagonism. You know, if you teach a a lesson about lynching, students are going to have questions. If you teach about sharecropping, students are going to have questions. Um, And they don't want those questions asked and certainly not answered. Um, And so I, I find our public discourse a kind of disavowal of our primal scene. And the primal scene of this country is anti-Blackness as well as genocide. Um, And so we want very much to repress that historical knowledge to sustain our fantasy of liberty and justice for all. And they're gonna do that by any means necessary. If that means banning books, if that means throwing people in jail, if that means cutting courses and firing teachers to sustain that fantasy, they will do it. Yeah, no doubt. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about what the liberal establishment that, or maybe you've kind of already answered the question in, in the sense that the conversation about anti-Blackness is supplanted or replaced by anti-racism. Yeah, I, I think we've collapsed racism and anti-Blackness. Mm. Um, we've collapsed them in a way that's 
not analytically rigorous and I think is, is not historically accurate as well. Blackness for me is not a race. Blackness is a structural position of functionality. That's not race. Um, race still relies on being. Um, and racism is the devaluation of certain beings. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not the same as an existence that has been barred from being. Those two are not the same. Um, and because we've collapsed the two, our attempts at an anti-racism to resolve the issue of Black suffering fails consistently. Right, almost necessarily. Consistently, necessarily, inevitably. Mm. It, it, it fails because it doesn't address the problem at hand, and the problem at hand is the violence of being itself. Mm. Not that one needs to be recognized as a being. It is that one does not have being. And um, accessing being or incorporating Blacks into being is a fallacy um, and a fantasy that won't occur. So anti-racism always misses the mark because its operations are metaphysical and non-ontological. Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of uh, something that I've been thinking about, I guess, more in terms of materialism and how the, the world that we inhabit is on one. Well, there's a certain sense in which we can show that capitalism is deeply theological. On the other hand, there's a sort of more widespread understanding, one that's enforced by the educational system, and by, you know, appeals to science and so on that atoms in a void sort of thing. And up until recently, that was for the most part, my position as well. And I was like, well, if we're saying that materialism is part of the problem of modernity, I guess, one of the problems of modernity, then you can't fight fire with fire because you're just going to end up burning more shit, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like it's uh, analogous to what you're saying is that, you know, you can't invoke the humanities to get out of this crisis that is inhumane. Yes. Something like that. I don't know. So I want to return really quickly to, I wrote it down when you were, when you said it, because it 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 piqued my interest. Um, You were talking about your current work and sexuality as an alibi for being, can you unpack that a little bit more? I'm really curious about what you mean by that. Yeah. So, I mean, one way to think about sexuality is that we very often use sexuality and I'll include in this gender as ways of expressing our beingness, you know, through the copular formulations, I am heterosexual, I am a boy, I am transgendered. Um, There is a way in which gender, sexuality, and sex have been used as ways in which being expresses itself. It's a way of anchoring you into being. And the more you hold on to the infrastructure of sexuality, the more concrete you are in being is what we are told. And what I have been thinking through is the way that, whether it's Hortense Spiller's understanding of ungendering um, as black bodies have been um, kind of evacuated from gender um, and that they exist in a way in which gender intelligibility is not realizable um, or sex um, not being a stable referent for black bodies um, or sexuality. When we think about the way that 
black bodies were used on the plantation that you become a sex toy. If the master, a male wants to have sex with you and you're a male, you're going to have sex with him. There isn't anything about desire. What's this desiring slave? The slave does whatever the master class wants. If the master wants you to have sex with a horse, you will have sex with a horse or you'll be whipped half to death. So there's a way in which sexuality also has been an instrument, not only of anti-Black dread, but as a way of reminding Blacks that they have been execrated, that they are outside of the orbit of being. They are nothing more than equipment. Um, so with this, I want to argue that um, just as we need to disabuse ourselves of the fantasy of being, Blacks also need to destroy sexuality as a structural being, that sexuality does not provide any liberatory, a gentle, you know, uh, workable instruments or concepts that all they, all they do is reproduce the very anti-Blackness that Black sexuality very often is mobilized to contest. Um, and so the book in, in its various iterations take steps at destroying various aspects of the infrastructure of sexuality as an anti-Black ontology. Yeah, uh, I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I guess I understand what you're saying as, as an extension of your, of your work that considers sexuality as a function of being, right? So the, the same philosophical arguments get leveraged in a slightly different vector, if that makes sense. That's fascinating. Um, what what do you what would you say that your your critics to the extent that you have I don't know if you have critics I'm sure mm -hmm. yes, I'm, I do. <laughs> do you, <laughs> what would you say is the thing that your critics tend tend to get wrong about you most often uh, and then the other part of that is what do your critics get right like has there been any criticism that has really kind of uh, sit with you a certain way that that you think has merit that you take seriously and has maybe even like influenced the uh, the direction of your thought yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one criticism that I think critics get right is that I don't place any hope in politics or the law. I'm a complete legal and political nihilist. I don't believe that they have any resource for Black life. Do you vote? Um, no, I don't vote. Yeah. Yeah, I don't vote. Um, and, um, you know, when critics say that I leave Blacks without any political hope. And I say that they're absolutely right. And I'm glad that they got that. And I don't leave them with any legal hope either. Mm. So for me, politics and hope are just irredeemably anti-Black. And, you know, using an irredeemable anti-Black resource to resolve anti-Blackness is just insane to me. Um, and I don't quite understand what they hope will happen. Mm. Um, what do I think they get wrong? I think one criticism is that Black nihilism is the nihilism of Nietzsche. And um, although we're both using the same sign of nihilism, I don't believe that Blacks have any will to power that's going to provide any relief from anti-Blackness. I don't believe that value is a structure that's going to save Blacks um, through constant evaluation of the life world. Hmm. Um, I don't believe that there is a subject of this will that, um, you know, can just, if de-idealizing ideals will help one to into becoming, 
then for me, that is not the Black subject. The infrastructure of Nietzschean nihilism is not the infrastructure of Black nihilism. And I think people very often conflate the two and then apply a Nietzschean critique to me Mm. when I'm arguing that Black nihilism is the abyss of Nietzschean nihilism. And that is to say, even in nihilism, one can rely on value and becoming. And for Heidegger, you can at least rely on being if you get nihilism right, because nihilism would be the withdrawal of being. And so Mm. we could remember being. And I'm arguing for Nietzsche and Heidegger, their solutions don't even apply to blackness. Mm. So all of the critics of Nietzsche and Heidegger's nihilism that are applied to my black nihilism, I find are are inappropriate. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that I understand kind of what's going on here. Blackness is what I want to say grounds metaphysics, but not not as a proper ground, um, but as an as an outside, mm-hmm. um, uh, something like a metaphysics other, uh, a nothing a nothingness or nihilism that is not a Nietzschean nihilism. It can't be conquered, mapped, or even properly thought. Um, it's not like a negation of being, mm-hmm. right? It's a sort of it's being's other or something like this, right? And 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 I think this is like what haunts the entire edifice of Western metaphysics, um, which is premised on this opposition between presence and absence, as Derrida would would say, you you know, you try to apply that to the entire field of being, it it just doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't translate that this negation can no longer be thought thought of as a negation. It's, it's a pure nothingness. Um, And I don't know, like a limit to intelligibility or something like that. And then that gets projected onto as a strategy onto black bodies. Um, to represent that nothingness, um, which can then be uh, dealt with. Yeah, yeah. Blacks have to carry that nothingness. It's imposed onto them. And in an attempt at a destruction and a domination of that nothingness, by destroying Black bodies, one thinks one has destroyed, you know, the terror of nothingness. Hmm. Um, And this ritual of destroying nothingness by destroying Black bodies and Black existence is an irresolvable one to the extent that metaphysics hasn't quite figured out what to do with nothing. So this, you know, metaphysical fantasy and a fantasy that materializes itself in the lived existence of Blacks um, is one that my book tries to trace. But also just to say that Blacks aren't the nothingness that they have to carry. It's to say that they have to carry nothingness, but nothingness provides nothing generative for them, like it does the Lacanian subject, or it does the Heideggerian subject, where nothingness is an aperture unto being. So nothing doesn't provide any generativity. There isn't any payback for the function and the burden that one has to carry. There's just destruction. I'm going to leave it there because, you know, (laughs) there's just destruction. (laughs) (laughs) That's nihilistic enough, I'm sure. (laughs) It's a good like movie trailer ending, you know, not to make light of uh, what you were saying, because I think it's very important. Um, Thanks again for coming on and and talking to me. I really appreciate it. I think your work is really important. I'll probably be thinking about it uh, in the weeks and months to come. I'm hoping you can come back at some point and, you know, talk about whatever you've got going on. Great. Thank you. 
yeah, anything else that you want to talk about, plug, any last thoughts? Anything? No, it was, it, was, it was great to uh, speak with you and to meet your son. And um, hopefully, you know, like you said, we can have another discussion. Yeah, this was a great conversation. Thanks again. Well, thank you for inviting me and for engaging my work. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.